It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Hi, this is Nathan. Forever ago, Philip Hartman had started a series looking at Psalm 16. Well, he never finished the passage. And so he decided that since Eric and Leslie are out of town for a couple of days, that he wanted to walk through and finish Psalm 16. Now, if you haven't listened to the other passages in this series, it goes back to episode number 44 and episode 93, which is where you can hear those first two messages on Psalm 16. But today, Philip is going to be focusing specifically on verses 7 through 9. It's a powerful enunciation of the reality of Jesus Christ in our lives as seen in the book of Psalms. And just as a reminder, if you've missed any of the Daily Thunder episodes, you can find all of the episodes on our website by going to ellersley.com forward slash daily. Now, here is Philip Hartman looking at Psalm 16, verses 7 through 9. So hopefully you have your Bibles. So turn with me to Psalm 16. And for those of you who are on the podcast, uh, I I started a a series on Psalm 16 a long time ago. And then I realized recently, I was like, I actually never finished that series. I got a little distracted, I think, with some of our messages and never finished it. So this week as I was pondering uh, what to share I decided to finish up that series. So we're going we're gonna to finish up some of it today. We're going to do a couple more verses. And then on Monday, we'll actually finalize the series. But you can go back if you're on a podcast. If you'd like to, you can go back and listen to the previous uh, few sessions on Psalm 16. But turn to Psalm 16, and, and I want to read through this to start. Now, this is a, it's called a miktam of David. And this is the first time in the Psalms that we see this word miktam. And we don't know exactly what it means. There's sort of some different educated guesses, you could say, on what the word miktam means, but it's actually in the scriptural psalms. This isn't a human title that we gave to it. This is actually the the title in the scriptures themselves. And I want to read something from Spurgeon, and and I read this previously, but I want to read this from Spurgeon explaining what a miktam is. So this is usually understood to mean the golden psalm, and such a title is most appropriate. For the matter is as most fine gold, Ainsworth calls it David's jewel or notable song. Dr. Hawker, who is always alive to passages full of savor, devoutly cries, some have rendered it precious, others golden, and others precious jewel. And as the Holy Ghost of the Apostles Peter and Paul has shown us that it is all about the Lord Jesus Christ, what is here said of him is precious, is golden, is a jewel indeed. We have not met with the term miktam before in the Psalms, but if spared to write upon Psalm 56, 57, 58, 59, and 60, we shall see it again. And shall observe that like the present these psalms, oh, they begin with prayer and imply trouble, abound in a holy confidence, and close with songs of assurance as to ultimate safety and joy. Dr. Alexander, who notes, whose notes are peculiarly valuable, thinks that the word is most, notably, most probably a simple derivative of a word signifying to hide, and signifies a secret or mystery, and indicates the depth of doctrinal or spiritual import in these sacred compositions. If this be the true interpretation, it well accords with the other. And when the two are put together, they make up a name which every reader will remember and which will bring the precious subject at once to mind, the psalm of the precious secret. And, and I like that, that name that Spurgeon gives to it 
because you have this idea of secret, which is to hide, which makes sense of something precious, right? People would hide their jewels or their, their, their precious things. But it also makes a lot of sense in terms of what this passage is. Uh, that this passage was one of the foundational messianic prophecies of Christ. In fact, one of the, the, the neat things about this passage is, did you know the first sermon that the church ever gave included this passage? In fact, this was sort of one of the key hallmark passages in the first sermon ever given in the church. So I think we're walking in good uh, footsteps of the apostles, if you want to say that this morning. In, in speaking of this psalm, if you go to Acts chapter 2, which we're not going to turn to necessarily this morning, but, but Peter, right after the fill of the Holy Spirit, stands up, talks to the men there, and, and of course different men are understanding them in different languages, and, and what does he go back to? He goes back to Psalm 16. And, and he literally preaches and quotes a good portion of this psalm. And, and what was the precious secret? Well, it's the Lord Jesus. That, that was the, the mystery that, that they thought it was just about David. They didn't understand it, or they didn't understand the application of it. And then Peter, who, who has been, they've been praying and, and I'm sure pondering the scriptures since the time that Jesus ascended, full of the Holy Spirit, stands up and declares this secret or this mystery to the men of, of Israel there in Jerusalem. So let's read the whole psalm, and we're going to be diving into uh, verses 7 through the first part of 9 uh, this morning. So it's a miktam of David. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, You are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And now there's three different layers or perspectives, and you could say this of any of the Psalms, uh, but, but uh, as we're pondering this, we're going to sort of harken back to these three layers. The first one being the psalm as it relates to David, right? But David is writing this psalm in a very real circumstance. Uh, very likely, this psalm was written as David was fleeing from Saul. And, and that's where you see this, this cry for preserve me, and, and that, that he is putting his confidence, his trust in the Lord, this declaration, I will not be moved, and so on. So Saul is, is pursuing David. There's a, a, a hardship or a great trouble that David is going through. And, of course, that is the original context of it. And, of course, David, he, he's a picture of Christ, right? He, he is, you know, after the seed of David, the line of David, we have all of these prophecies, and David is a picture of Christ. And so we have the psalm as it relates to Jesus, meaning how does this show us Jesus? And, and that's where you see the apostles as they come to this psalm so clearly declaring, this, this wasn't talking about David. This is talking about Jesus. That, that, yeah, maybe it was originally written by him, but it was a prophetic writing talking about Jesus, the Messiah to come. And then number three, the psalm as it relates to us. How do we apply this to our lives today? How do we look at, at the Lord Jesus 
and then look at this in our own lives. So we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 9. So I just want to read those again. It says, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rest in hope. Now this last verse 9, you have sort of this, he says, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. And then he sort of transitions into my flesh also will rest in hope, which is where he then goes into that you're not going to leave me in, in shill and so on and so on. We're going to go into that next week, which is sort of a pinnacle of this psalm. I, I, I'm excited for what we're going to go for on Monday. Uh, but we're just going to go for the first portion, which is where he talks about my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. And then we'll continue on uh, on Monday into the next portion. And so here David is, and, and he's, he's fleeing from Saul. Of course, I, 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 if I remember correctly, I think it was 17 times that Saul attempts to assassinate David. Can you imagine somebody trying to kill you 17 times? Uh, that would be a difficult circumstance. And, and yet here he is in the midst of his difficulty, and yet like Job, his declaration is, I will bless the Lord. That, that yes, I'm in this difficult circumstance, yes, I'm in a challenging way, and I'm crying out, Lord, preserve me, and yet the statement is, I am going to bless the Lord. And so I want to look at this idea, you see this idea all throughout the Psalms, bless the Lord, O my soul, but what does that mean? And, and I want to look at that a little bit. So if you look at the Hebrew, the word for, for bless there, it's, it's the word barak. Uh, sort of like a previous president that we had. It's sort of how it sounds. Barak, okay, different meaning, but uh, same uh, enuncia- or pronunciation. It, the, the meaning of this, it's, it's very similar to the word for worship in the Hebrew. Now many of us, when we think of worship, we think of this idea of like singing. We say we were going to have a worship time or something like that. Actually, Worship doesn't really have anything to do with singing. It doesn't mean it, it couldn't be expressed through what is called praise in the Old Testament or in the Scriptures, which praise has been where we're taking our mouth and we're using it to declare, whether through words or, or declarations or through music. But worship is a disposition of the soul. Now, the, first, the, the first mention of the word worship in the Old Testament is actually when Abraham is bringing Isaac up to, to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah, which, by the way, is... is the, the place where the temple is built later on, and, and is a picture of the Lord Jesus, of course. And he's bringing him up, and you know what he tells his servants? We're going to go up and worship the Lord. That's, that's literally his statement. That, that he saw this trial, or this test, as worship. And, and of course, the Lord is proving him to see who he is going to worship. And he says, we're going to go up and worship the Lord. And what is he doing? He puts even that which is good, his son Isaac, on the altar, and then, of course, we have the, the provision of the lamb, and it said, and that's the first time that the word worship is mentioned in the scriptures, is, is right there as he's going up and saying, we're going to go up and worship the Lord. And in the idea of worship, it's this idea of, of coming low. In fact, it, has, it comes from the word for a dog licking his master's hand, meaning taking on a position of lowliness, taking on a, a position of, of bending. Well, this word bless is a little bit similar, but it means to kneel. That's actually the literal meaning, to kneel, to, to get down on one's knees. It, by implication, to bless God as an act of adoration. Now, of course, this word is also used in terms of man to man. And the idea there is not actually that I'm giving a blessing. This is interesting. The, 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 the idea of me blessing somebody else is not actually me blessing them. 
But the idea is I'm actually asking for God's blessing upon them. But here the idea is it's this acknowledgement that, that I don't have that which is, is needful. I am not that which is important, but you are. Uh, it's, it's this act of adoration, of, of, of adoring our king and, and looking unto him and, and, and bending ourselves in humility and lowliness before him. Uh, it's, it says that the primary notion in this word lies in the breaking down. In breaking down, isn't that interesting? As in coming low, bending down, and kneeling before the Lord our maker. In light of him being our creator, and we being his created, we bend low, and we bless the Lord in adoration. So when we say bless the Lord, it's not this idea as if we have anything to give to him. And even when we're blessing somebody else, the true blessing to somebody else recognizes, I don't have anything to give you, and so I'm asking the Lord to bless your life. Right? But when we bless the Lord, it's not me coming to him saying, I've got something to give to you, but it's me coming and saying, I have nothing, so I'm bending before you. I am breaking down before you, as it were. I'm coming low before you, humbling myself before you as the creator and me as the created being, and I'm adoring you in that. Because it has this idea of, you could say, worship or adoration or, or beholding. And, and we're going to see that in a little bit. Right? He says, I've set the Lord always before. Right? He's beholding. He's adoring the Lord in this blessing of the Lord. Coming low before him. And so he says, <clears throat> I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. That our Lord has not left us without counsel. He has given us for revelation of himself. He's given us his word. And of course there, it was, it was parcel, right? It wasn't the full uh, revelation that we have now in this time. Uh, but he says, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. That he has not left us without wisdom. He has not left us confused. He has not left us in a dark place. But he has left us with counsel. That we have the word of God. We have a counsel. And so how much more a reason to bless the Lord, but not just another reason to bless the Lord, but also that ought to dictate how we bless the Lord. You guys remember uh, Nadab and Abihu, and they brought strange fire. Hey, Bo, good morning. So Nadab and Abihu, they come and they bring strange fire, and of course, they're consumed. And so we don't bless the Lord. There's, there's, there's so many notions of false humility in our culture, aren't there? Of, of sort of this false lowness, and, and we don't bless the Lord according to our own counsel, but we, we bless the Lord, we bend before him, we come before him according to his counsel. Uh, that, that we don't worship him however we desire to, but we come to him as the one who has given us counsel, not as Adab, or sorry, Nadab and Abihu with their strange fire, but as David according to the word of God. And so he continues on, and he says, my reigns also instruct me in the night seasons. So he says, I will bless the Lord in, in, who has given me counsel. And then not only do I have that counsel, but my reigns instruct me in the night seasons. And this is one of those verses that you sort of look at in first and you're like, how do I, how do I handle this? But some, some verses say my heart instructs me. And of course, we're like, no, no, you don't follow your heart. Uh, you follow the counsel of the Lord. What's this about? Uh, but the reins is this idea of, of the hidden part. Okay, so literally it means the kidneys. And it, the idea is, is they're hidden back and they're wrapped in fat. And, and the idea in that culture is they're totally hidden in fat 
and they're hidden away. You don't see them. They're concealed. They're sort of, at, you know, right in the back. And, and that was the idea of the kidneys. And it was this idea of the innermost being or the most hidden or sacred part of a man. And, and what Jesus says is that he desires truth in the innermost. And one of the Psalms, Psalm 51, says, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, thou shalt make me to know wisdom. That, that you could say in that kidney region, and again, it's not kidneys physically, but this is the inner man, that in that region of the man, that we would have truth in the inward parts. Uh, Jesus says that he who believes on him out of his innermost would flow rivers of living water. That the pattern of the gospel is not one that conforms man from the outside and, and, then, and then begins to change his heart, but the pattern of the gospel is that God totally changes us starting at the innermost. And then he starts there, and then he transforms us from that place. And, and so the kidneys also have this idea of, of purifying. And a lot of people would, would say this is even the idea of, of the conscience or the spirit of God who, who, who works upon our conscience and, and trains our conscience and purifies us through that. Because the, pure, the, the kidneys are, are that which purify and, and cleanse. And so he says, in the night seasons that his rains instruct him. The, now, now, some translations would say the night season, some would say in the nighttime. And I think you could take it either way. Uh, but, but in other words, in the dark seasons, whether that's at night, literally, or whether that's a night season, which David is in when he's writing this, that literally is being pursued by, by Saul who wants to kill him. And he says in the night seasons, that, that, that the truth in the inward parts, if you can say it that way, that his reigns instructs him in those Season. Psalm 26 says, examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. And so the Lord Jesus transforms us from the inside out, and he plants truth in the inward parts, and he purifies us in the inward parts. And then what begins to happen? Well, e even in the night seasons, we have his counsel, and then his counsel is planted within us, like, like it talks about the word of God dwelling in you richly, right, in the New Testament. The word of God dwells in us richly, and and that, that instructs us, that trains us. So I want to look at this in David's life a little bit. Uh, and, and I think the closest term that I oftentimes use for this is preaching to ourselves. And, and you see his, his inner man as he's processing things that are going on, and how does he respond to that? Well, he responds in the same way that the counsel of, of the Lord uh, has given him the means to respond. So let me give you some examples. Psalm 16, which is this chapter. Earlier in the chapter, you see in verse 2 where he says, O my soul, thou hast said to the Lord, thou art my Lord. My goodness extends not to thee. Isn't that interesting? He's reminding his soul of what he's declared about his Lord being his, about the Lord being his Lord. He's reminding himself of these truths. Psalm 103, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. In verse 22, it says, bless the Lord, all his works and all places of his dominion. There's quite a few alls in that. Sort of like, love the Lord, you're out of all your heart and so on. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Psalm 104, bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty. For Psalm 42, why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. 
Psalm 116, return unto thy rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with thee. Praise ye the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. And so here you have David, he's taking the counsel of the word of God, and he's applying it to himself. He's saying, soul, buck up and bless the Lord, as it were. You guys know the word hallelujah? It's, it's in a command form. So probably the best tone of voice for the word hallelujah, it's not like, oh, hallelujah. It, probably the best tone of voice would be like, hallelujah. Praise the Lord, that's what it means. It literally is a command, praise the Lord. So when I'm saying hallelujah, I'm saying, oh my soul, praise the Lord. Why are you disquieted within me? You said he is your Lord, praise him. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. And so he has given me this counsel, and then what am I doing? Well, I take that, and I'm, I'm bringing my life in a subjection with, with the counsel of the Lord, or, or the word of the Lord. And, and I am walking in the light of his countenance. And so it goes on in verse 8, where it talks about, it says, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Now this idea of setting the Lord before us, it's not a physical or, or, or you know, that sort of thing. This idea of the gaze of the soul. What, what, is my eyes, what are my eyes looking towards? But David is saying, I've set him before my eyes. I, I'm looking to him. I've set him always before me. Like the Proverbs talks about, don't turn to the right hand. Or to the left, let your eyes look straight before you. And he said, I've set the Lord always before me. Now, as I was pondering this passage, I was thinking about, you know what's interesting is even in our physical life, where your eyes look is of great importance. So, for example, if you're lifting weights, you know, one of the keys to lifting weights is that you never have your eyes looking down. Your eyes are always looking out or up when you're lifting weights. And that literally straightens out your spine and enables you to lift them in a healthy way. Isn't that interesting? That, that where your eyes are is important in how your body functions. Uh, even when you're running, you'll see a lot of runners. And, and the professional runners, where are they looking? They're looking up. Because literally, it's opening up your airways when you're looking up, as opposed to when you're... That's why, like, I don't know if you guys ever in PE or gym class afterwards, they're like, lift up your hands after you ran, uh, because it actually helps open up your airways for you to breathe better. So if you, if you lift up your hands like this and look up, you're actually going to get more oxygen. Isn't that interesting? In your lungs. But literally, where the eyes are looking makes a difference in this physical body. And what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he says this. He says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust does corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness." The, 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 the eye is like the light of a body. And he, and he says, if it's single, then it's light. But if not, then it will be full of darkness. And so he says, I've, I, I've had a single eye. I've set the Lord always before me. That's what I'm looking toward. That's my aim. It's like Hebrews 11, where it says, By faith, speaking to Moses, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. For he endured. How did he endure? As seeing him who is invisible. We look not on the things which are visible, but on that which is invisible, right? For that which is visible is temporal, and that which is 
invisible, is eternal. And so looking with a single eye at him, I've set the Lord always before me. And, and isn't it interesting, he says, where your treasure is, there will your, your heart be also. And, and if you jump to the end of, of uh, or, or the middle of verse 9, his heart's rejoicing, right? Why? Because his eyes are fixed upon his treasure. His, his eyes are fixed upon the Lord. And he goes on, he says, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Now, this is really interesting, okay? Because if you, if you look at the end of a psalm, it says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Uh, which side of, of the Father is Jesus on? The right side, thank you. But this is interesting, because look at this. He says, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Now, how does that work? Because if you, this is going to be really confusing for those on the podcast. But, you know, imagine this is the throne. If I'm at his right hand, he's not in my right hand. And I'm, if I'm at his, if he's at my right hand, I'm at his left hand. Isn't that odd? So you have this very interesting thing here where it says, because he's at my right hand, I shall not be moved. And I remember studying this going, what in the world is going on here? And it's really interesting if you begin to look at this whole idea of right-handedness, which we're not going to go into very much, but the right hand in the Scripture is really significant. It's the idea of blessing, it's the idea of power, it's the idea of authority, um, right, the laying on. You guys remember jo- Joseph, and is it Manasseh and Ephraim? And what does he do? He swaps his hands, uh, sorry, Jacob swaps his hands as he's blessing Joseph's children, Manasseh and Ephraim, and he puts his right hand on the younger, which is Ephraim. And Joseph goes, no, no, father, you've got him backwards, you're blind, it's okay, let's swap him back. And he goes, I know it, my son, I know it. Yes, Manasseh will be great, Ephraim will be greater. He puts his right hand, isn't that interesting? Right, so it's this idea of blessing, this idea of inheritance, this idea of authority or power, or there's a lot of different meanings of a right hand, right? Uh, Psalm 60 says, save me with your right hand. Uh, Psalm 63 says, your right hand upholds me, right? You, you never hear about your, your left hand upholds me. Uh, that's not you hear about your right hand. Uh, it says, he brought them to his holy boulder. This, b- border. This is in Psalm 78. This mountain which his right hand had acquired. So you have this idea throughout the scriptures of the right hand. And, and so you have here this interesting thing because he says, because you are at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Now I want to take you to a passage in the Psalms, Psalm 109, and it, and it talks about, there's this also passage in Zechariah chapter 3. We're not going to go to it this morning, but it talks about something in the culture there that maybe gives us a little bit of insight into this. Uh, <clears throat> one of the things that would happen is, is if they were bringing a, a man who had an accusation against somebody before one of the priests, he would stand of a right hand of the man that he was accusing. Okay? So, so in that culture, he would stand of a right hand and he would make his accusation. And it talks about this in Psalm 109. Again, Psalm 109 is, is a foundational passage that is prophesying about Jesus. It's also prophesying about Judas in, in Psalm 109, which is what Peter quotes from in, is it beginning of Acts chapter 2 or late Acts chapter 1? I don't remember, but right there in the early church, he quotes from this, and you'll recognize that. So this is a Psalm of David. And it says, do not keep silent, O God, in my praise. For the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred. 
and fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers. But I give myself to prayer. Isn't that powerful? I mean, think about Garden of Gethsemane. He knows what Judas is doing in return for his love. And he, and he goes and he prays. And, and he says, Thus they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Set a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. So you see this again? You see this accuser standing at his right hand. And by the way, the word there for accuser is actually the word Satan. It's, it's literally the word Satan. And if you go to Zechariah 3, the, the accuser, it's literally Satan there standing at right hand to accuse. He's called the accuser of the brethren. So it's let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty, and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. And again, that's what Peter quotes later when he talks about replacing Judas. So we go down to, to verse 20. It says, Let this be the Lord's reward to my accusers and to those who speak evil against my person. He goes through a whole bunch of, of curses upon that person, basically. But you, O God, you, O God the Lord, deal with me for your namesake. Because your mercy is good, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I am gone like a shadow when it lengthens. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting, and my flesh is feeble through lack of fatness. I also have become a reproach to them. When they look at me, they shake their heads. All right, remind you of the cross. Help me, O Lord my God. O save me according to your mercy, that they may know that this is your hand that you, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you bless. When they arise, let them be ashamed, but let your servant rejoice. Let my accusers be clothed with shame, and let them cover themselves with their own disgrace as with a mantle. I will greatly praise the Lord of my mouth. Yea, I will praise him among the multitude. For he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him. Did you guys hear that? He shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him. So earlier in the passage, it refers to this cultural thing where the accuser will stand at the right hand. And yet, what does the Lord do? He stands to save from those who would condemn. He stands to save from those who would accuse. That he literally intercedes, or you could say even stands in the gap. Now, I don't know if this is the totally right mental picture, my mental picture is that here are we, the poor and the needy, and the Lord is at our right hand, and of course over here is the accuser at our right hand, and what does he do? Well, he stands in the gap. He stands on behalf of those who are the poor and needy at our right hand, and therefore we will not be moved. But it says the Lord Jesus Christ has been raised up as a, a better priesthood, bringing in a new covenant, and, and as the priest of that covenant, he ever lives to, lives to intercede on our behalf. That he stands before, as it were, the bar of heaven to intercede on our behalf. And, and he stands, you can say, at the right hand to, 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 to stand and intercede between those who would seek to condemn and accuse. And, and, and in, in a certain way, isn't it interesting to think about the father? You could say this, interceded on behalf of the son when he raised him up from the dead. What did he do? Well, he brought him back from the dead. That, that, that God raises the Lord Jesus Christ up from the dead, and then where does he sit him? At the right hand of God. So the end goal, if you go back to Psalm 16, is what? Well, at the right hand are pleasures forevermore. And yet it's almost like at, at my right hand 
is this idea of, of needing intercession. And what does he do? Well, well he intercedes on our behalf, and then it's, he plants us firmly at his right hand in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That we are seated with him in heavenly places at the right hand of the Father, which is a place where there is, is our pleasures forevermore, which is what Psalm 16 talks about. It says in, in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 29, Men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you. This is part of, of Peter's sermon there, which we'll get into more Monday. Let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, that of a fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on the throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus has God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses, therefore being by the right hand of God exalted, so the right hand of God exalted, in having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. And so David declares, because he is at my right hand, because he is interceding on my behalf, right? Remember, this is a place from which intercession takes place. Because of that, I will not be moved. And, and we could say, because he has interposed his blood, that the accuser of the brethren has no place to accuse us. Because of the shed blood, because he has become Jehovah's canoe, the Lord our righteousness, he has no place to stand and accuse me. I shall not be moved from that position. He, he has no, nothing that can stick anymore against me. And then what has he done? Well, he has brought us into the kingdom of his dear son and seated us at the right hand of a father in Christ Jesus. We will not be moved because the one who ever lives to intercede on our behalf, the Lord Jesus Christ, is interceding for us. And then it goes into the last verse here that we're going to cover today, verse 9, and he says, therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. Therefore, right? And remember, if there's a therefore, you got to see what it's there for. And, and, and so he's concluding this, saying, because of this reality, well, what is the reality? I, I would say it's two things here. He set the Lord always before him, and he, and, and he has, the Lord is interceded on his behalf, right? The, the, the Lord is right before him. He set his eyes upon the Lord, and because he has right hand, he will not be moved. Hebrews 12 says this. It says, looking unto Jesus, right? Because he's setting the Lord before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. Now remember, this is talking about Jesus, right? Yes, David's declaring this, but this is, and, and, and what do you do? He set his eyes upon the joy that was set before him, right? He's fixed his eyes upon that which was before him, and he endured all of these things and sat down at the right hand of God after the right hand had, had as it were, raised him up. And, he, and it says, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. And so David says, because he's before me, my heart is glad, my glory rejoices. 
Right? Because he's, his, that's what he's looking forward to. Because that's what his eyes are upon. Because that's where his singular eye is, his treasure is. His, his heart is glad and his glory rejoices. The joy is not something I'm just trying to produce, but I set the Lord before me, and what's that? It's going to produce joy, right? And then, secondly, I have this confidence, right? I shall not be moved. Why? Because the Lord is interceding on my behalf. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. And so I just want to read the passage one more time as we close up today. But he says, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. Let's pray. Lord, I, I, I do pray that that would be the reality in our lives, that we fix our eyes upon you. We don't look at that which is visible, but that which is invisible. Our faith rests not in, in earthly things. Our faith rests not in what we can see, but in the righteous right hand of God, which is interceded there upon the cross on our behalf. That you stood for us, that you died for us, and because of that interceding work, because of that atonement, we will not be moved. That you have taken that which was necessary to then take us and establish us at the right hand of God where there are pleasures forevermore. And so Lord, we look unto you this morning as it says, look unto me all the ends of the earth and be saved. We look unto you, Lord. Our eyes are upon you. Whether that's in difficulty, whether that's in, in, in times of joy, I pray that, that just like David said, our heart would be glad and that our glory would rejoice, not, not because of just petty things of this earth, but because our eyes are fixed upon you and that we would rejoice afresh in that atoning work upon the cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for that work. It's in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.